Thanks to Slack for supporting the Motley Fool's industry-focused financials. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all your team's communications in one place, making work simpler and more productive. Go to slack.com to learn more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. You're listening to the Financials Edition taped today on Monday, July 17th, 2017. My name is Gabby LaPera, and joining me on Skype is Brian Patrick Eha, a journalist whose work has been published by Fortune, The New Yorker, and CNN Money. Also, a variety of other publications. Hey, Ryan, how's it going? Hi, Gabby. And uh, yeah, and don't forget my book. Yes, no, actually, uh, I'm I'm getting to that. Don't you worry. Um, there was a there was a really great response the last time that you were on, um, and y'all, as in y'all, the listeners, asked for more, and I live to serve. Um, <laughs> and so last time uh, you were here, you were actually on the show to talk about your book, How Money Got Free: Bitcoin and the Fight for the Future of Finance. And knowing authors, also what you just said, I'm sure you'd like a chance to plug your book again. <laughs> Sure. Well, my book is, just came out in May. It's the um, definitive journalistic account of the story of Bitcoin and its implications for the world, uh, technologically, economically, socially, financially. And uh, I worked on it for uh, quite a long time. I got the original book deal in December 2013. It's available now on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk, as well as in uh, bookstores on both sides of the Atlantic. So. And what you didn't say is that How Money Got Free was a wonderful book. Um, I don't know if you know this, but copies have actually been passed around by at least three of the analysts at The Fool already, including like Simon Erickson and some of our other kind of big name analysts. So, congratulations, you've piqued the interest of both people internally as well as my listeners. And listeners, oh, well, fantastic. Thank yeah, yeah. Um, listeners, if you're curious about the book, um, you should probably just buy it, but I'm also happy to send you a link to the last show that Brian was on so that you can give it a listen and decide for yourself. Or you can dig for that episode for yourself if you want. I believe that the astoundingly creative title for that show was How Money Got Free, an interview with Brian Patrick Eha, so it shouldn't be too hard to find. Google and, is your friend. <laughs> exactly. Um, and now that we've said How Money Got Free a few times so that it's like penetrated into listener subconscious, <laughs> let's uh, <laughs> let's turn to the Fortune article that you recently wrote. You, you wrote this 5,000-word feature in Fortune magazine, and that's kind of a little bit more what you're on the show to talk about today. So, can you give like a very brief overview about that article? Sure. So, in a way, I, I see it almost as a sequel to the book. It's um, in two senses. One is that it talks about a lot of new and cutting edge uh, things uh, happening in the world of cryptocurrency and blockchain technology, things that were so new and cutting edge, they uh, couldn't make it into the book because of the, the lead time that was required for publication. Uh, and then the second sense in which it's kind of a sequel to the book is that uh, a lot of the information in the article, it's wrapped up in a profile of one of the main characters from my book, a guy named Charlie Schrem, who, uh, uh, spoiler alert, he spent some time in federal prison and he's out now and he's got a new job and he's working on a comeback that kind of places him back at the center of a lot of exciting things that are happening in this industry. So um, as we, and, and, and Charlie is a great, Kind of viewpoint character, especially for readers who may still be at that Bitcoin 101 level of, of you know, ignorance or lack of awareness that they're still wondering, well, what even is Bitcoin? Charlie is a guy who got into Bitcoin way back in 2011. And so by kind of doing a profile of him, I was able to take readers from the early days up through some of the really exciting stuff that's happening now 
but because of also his, his some of his run-ins with the law and so on, I was able to dig into questions of um, you know regulations and uh, legality and things like that. Yeah, and that's actually what made both the book and the article super special, is that unlike a lot of financial writing, which is just kind of just the facts, ma'am, nothing but the facts, um, you provide a whole story and uh, you really hook readers in with a narrative as opposed to just dry recitation of what happened. Um, Anyway, listeners, if you want a link to that article, the Fortune article, let me know. It was a really great article. I'm happy to email that to you. Um, yeah. Again, you could probably we'll Google it. it but... the, uh, <laughs> sorry to pick it up in print in the current issue because oh. I do think the reading experience in print is is really superior. There's some great photography in there that I think might not be in the online version. See, that's so funny because I like have completely forgotten that you can get articles in any other mode other than the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, online is certainly convenient. You can send a link and stuff. Yeah, Um, but if you actually happen to find a a physical copy of Fortune magazine, consider buying it, listeners. Um, Okay, so let's just dive right in. Um, So the reason I wanted to have you on the show today, um, besides the fact that our last interview was super awesome, was because... Uh, Bitcoin is exploding in popularity. People know a lot about it. It's gone up to like 2,500 recently. It's it's not super, super uh, interesting, exciting stuff. But what a lot of people don't seem to realize is that there are other types of digital currencies, of cryptocurrencies even, which are being called altcoins. Um, can you explain what an altcoin is? and how they differ from Bitcoin, if at all. Sure. So, altcoins is actually a term that kind of started in about 2014. Um, This is when we started to see a number of alternative digital currencies begin popping up um, with names like uh, Darkcoin, Potcoin, Lovecoin, you know, they many of them have these kind of funny or fanciful names, and they were trying to fill some kind of branding niche, if not actually a, a, a niche use case. Um, the term altcoin to a lot of diehard Bitcoiners um, has sort of a bad ring to it because most of these early altcoins were just kind of clones of Bitcoin with a few variables changed. So for listeners who don't know, Bitcoin uh, runs on open source software. And so while there are um, consensus mechanisms on the Bitcoin network that mean that you can't just go in and change the code and change it for everybody, what you can do is you can grab the code for yourself, change a couple of variables, and then release your own digital currency with whatever name you want. Um, and that's what a lot of these people did. They said, you know, okay, if if Bitcoin's blockchain creates new blocks every 10 minutes, let's say, well, what if we create uh, blocks every two and a half minutes or you know, what if um, instead of there being a hard cap of 21 million coins that will ever be created, what if it's 210 million and so on? And um, but but the problem with many of these uh, early altcoins was that they didn't really represent any technological innovation or breakthrough beyond what Bitcoin did. And Bitcoin, of course, had that first mover advantage and that that great unparalleled um, name recognition. So none of these other early altcoins were ever able to really overtake Bitcoin. Uh, but what they were used for is is kind of pump and dump vehicles on these um, unregulated 24-hour online exchanges that they just run around the clock and are accessible from, from you know, pretty much anywhere in the world, many of them. Um, 
And so a new a new coin might be launched and either its creator or some whales would kind of get together and decide they were going to buy a bunch of it to pump up its value. And then, you know, of course, other people would see the action. They would want a piece of it. They would pile in and they would then, um, you know, once the price was sufficiently kind of high, then a lot of times the whales would sell, make a huge profit for themselves. I mean, literally kind of, um, you know, uh, extracting real value from what maybe a month ago hadn't even existed. And then, uh, you know, meanwhile, some of the other people would sell, but but often there would be these people who took a big loss on the uh, on the action, and there was this sort of derisive term for them. They were called bag holders. They were the ones kind of they were left holding the bag after um, that is you know the action dried up. Really sad. And also, I'm just going to insert myself here real quick for a pop culture reference. Apparently, Fifty Cent or Fifty Cent. Um, bought a, encouraged listeners through Twitter to buy a ton of penny stocks, and then he did a pump and dump essentially. Really? Um, which is funny because his name is Fifty Cent and Penny Stocks. <laughs> anyway, well, you know, and Fifty Cent also he sold uh, one of his albums a couple of years ago for Bitcoin, not exclusively for Bitcoin, but he allowed people to buy it with Bitcoin. And when he was asked on some late night talk show, you know, why he was doing that, his sort of very you know cool gangster response was. Money is money, <laughs> which I, I point out. I think in the epilogue to my book, you could see that either as just some some gangster to say, or you could uh, see it as a real profound statement on the inherent value of this new form of money. <laughs> yeah. So actually, talking about this new form of money, so we have all these altcoins. For the most part, they amount to nothing. But there's a new name that's kind of been bubbling up um, through the financial space, and that's Ethereum. Right. So Ethereum was one of the first ones, um, the, one of the first alternative digital currencies that really represented new technological innovations beyond Bitcoin. Um, so much so that um, this might be kind of hyperbolic, but one of the um, uh, venture capitalists who was bullish on Ethereum, um, or actually, I'm sorry, it was um, one of the co-founders of Coinbase, which is pretty much the closest thing Bitcoin has to a blue chip company. And for a long time, they have uh, had a wallet service that has allowed people to do simple buys and uh, sells of Bitcoin within the wallet interface. When they decided to add support for Ether, the uh, the native coin of the Ethereum network, so that you could buy and sell uh, Ether from within the wallet service and store Ether balances as well, I remember one of the co-founders of Coinbase said that... Um, Compared to the four-function calculator of Bitcoin, Ethereum was like a supercomputer. And now that might have been hyperbolic, but the reason for that is that um, when Ethereum was created, it, uh, they, they built in a scripting language for a thing that's called smart contracts. These are basically um, agreements in code that can execute their terms automatically in response to preset conditions. And the, the code for the agreement is transparently viewable by all parties. And the idea is that some of these things might, um, you know, one day replace uh, real contracts, uh, things that require lots of man hours and lawyers to figure out. Um, but in the meantime, they're being used to uh, do things like, you know, they can be used to um, automatically distribute shares or tokens to uh, investors in the amounts required. They can be used to to perform different business functions automatically. Um, Ethereum has some really in interesting things about it, and there are other digital currencies now besides Bitcoin 
that are coming to the fore. And most people don't call them altcoins because, you know, that that term altcoin, as I said, at least in my mind, it really applies to those early kind of pump and dump schemes and so on. Um, There are several, I would say, or at least a handful of other digital currencies now, among them ones uh, called Dash, Zcash, uh, Monero, that have their own uh, technological breakthroughs. They promise perhaps to, to have faster transactions than Bitcoin or to be even more private potentially or anonymous than Bitcoin, um, you know, even more secure in some way, or they have these additional um, capabilities like a, uh, what I mentioned for Ethereum. And just to- so this is really interesting. It's creating this kind of sense that a lot among many people that, 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 that there won't be one coin to rule them all, um, <laughs> as, as Tolkien might say, that there's this multi-coin ecosystem that has emerged. And just a quick question for you. Does that mean that each one of these is running off of its own blockchain? Like they're not all on the same like Bitcoin blockchain, right? Like they, they, they build their own systems? Yes, absolutely. So and that's one of the things that has been, you know, uh, a big challenge for the people behind these projects is that you know, Bitcoin, as I said, has this unparalleled name recognition it's the one that you know has has garnered headlines around the world for years now uh these others start essentially from zero and they have to you know convince developers at first often to volunteer their time and then maybe they're able to pay them later but um they they aren't really corporations in any sense they're really these open source software projects kind of like a linux or something um although eventually a core team of developers may uh, operate more like a startup with salaries and so on. The Dash uh, core team works that way. Um, and actually as, uh, but but Dash has been around for a few years now. It actually started as one of these early altcoins and it kind of had its early spike in value with the pump and dumps and then it kind of went away. And most people remain totally unaware of it, but its creator and other developers continued to put time into it, continued to add new features, new functionality, continued to make it more sophisticated, grow the network, slowly gain adoption uh, to the point that now it is one of the most valuable cryptocurrencies out there with, a, I think, at least recently, a market cap above $1 billion for the value of all Dash coins in existence. That's so crazy. Um, and I actually, I, I just want to kind of shift our focus um, a little bit because we've talked a lot about these altcoins and like the new technology and the, the new features that are being added to them. But there's something kind of even newer, right. I guess, more new, I suppose, if we're going to use proper English, um, that is something called a token. And, right. and that is something that you talk about pretty extensively in your Fortune article. Can you talk a little bit about what a token is, how it different differs from like a, an out and out cryptocurrency, and like kind of like we'll get into it. But like I want I want to know sure. a little bit about the economics of it as well. Sure. So it gets a little bit confusing um, with the way some people use the nomenclature. You know, some people will say that Bitcoin, for instance, is the token of the Bitcoin network. Uh, You know, Bitcoin with a small b is the token of the capital B Bitcoin network. I tried to keep the terms separate for clarity's sake. So I would say a digital currency, also known as a cryptocurrency, uh, its real distinguishing factor is that it has its own unique blockchain. With, with mechanisms for consensus, mechanisms for creating a supply of, of new coins, and so on. Um, 
the the thing about tokens is that they don't have blockchains of their own. Instead, they run on an existing blockchain like Bitcoins or Ethereum's. And in fact, most of them run on Ethereum's because of that scripting language I mentioned. Uh, people are able to create some basic um, coded agreements that allow the distribution of tokens and, and, and those other are, things. Those are the smart contracts. Exactly. Yes. So uh, the the other thing about these tokens is that rather than kind of aspiring to be a, a digital form of commodity money, like a digital gold or um, you know a money of the internet for e-commerce and things like that, they tend to be purpose-built for specific applications. Uh, so like there's one called Gollum, which powers a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for computation. Uh, there's one called Augur, which is uh, meant to power a crowdsourced prediction market that we'll be launching soon, and so on. Um, dozens of these tokens have been launched so far, and there are dozens more on the horizon this year. Now, holding a token, they do have monetary value, and they trade on some of the same online exchanges where cryptocurrencies are bought and sold. Um, but holding a token, it's, it's a little bit like owning equity in a startup, and it's a little bit like having membership to some community, but it's actually kind of different from all of these. Um, the venture capitalist Balaji Srinivasan uh, he analogizes them to um, the concept of a paid API key. So, for example, he says, you know, when you buy an API key from Amazon Web Services, you can then, you know, you're spending dollars, um, but then you can redeem that API key for time on Amazon's cloud. Uh, so the purchase of one of these tokens is similar if the token has utility on the platform that is being built, that it's associated with. Um, holding that token then kind of allows you to participate on that platform or in that network. Or if you're just an investor, you could say that holding the token is sort of like a, placing a bet that that, uh, that new protocol, that new platform is going to become uh, valuable and, and its, its use will grow with time. And so then that kind of redemption value gives the tokens this inherent utility. Okay, so listeners, we've given you a lot to chew on. So while you kind of digest that, I uh, want to take a brief pause to thank Slack again for supporting our podcast. Slack is a messaging app which brings together all of your team's communications in one place, making your working lives simpler and more productive. Slack reduces email and can streamline your team's communication. It connects the tools and services you need in one place and allows you to organize your team with real-time messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives all in one easy-to-use app. Major companies regularly use Slack, such as Capital One, Electronic Arts, Taco Bell. I really love Taco Bell. It's a dirty secret that I have, um, Autodesk, Lush Cosmetics, and The Motley Fool. I actually use the service every day and sometimes on the weekends when I really want to annoy my coworkers <laughs> slash when I actually have weekend work to do. Um, but oh, you're yeah, that person sending those gifts all the time. Yeah, it's me. I can't. I can't help it. It has this built-in like GIF slash GIF, depending on who you are, function, and it's great. Um, and I, I just, I, oh, they're so good. Um, <laughs> there's nothing more. I feel like such a such like a child when I say that because it's like it's like um, it's like watching fire. There's nothing more that I that I love than little images that move in loops, and I don't know why. Right, these hypnotic loops. Yeah, especially the ones that loop perfectly. Mm, mm -hmm. Anyway, Slack. <laughs> Slack also saves time and improves productivity, although 
You wouldn't guess it from that little side conversation we just had. No more searching through emails for that one follow-up or searching through multiple systems to find what you're looking for. No more switching across multiple tabs and platforms to keep updated with work. Those are both true things. Um, it's also easy and convenient. Uh, it has a drag-and-drop file sharing that works with all the apps you already use, like Dropbox, Google Drive, and Trello. Plus, you can tailor Slack to your work with over 900 apps. Um, and Slack works everywhere you go, with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync sem seamlessly. You can always pick up where you left off, no matter where you are. Slack, where work happens. Find out why at slack.com. That's slack.com. Okay, so turning back to Bitcoin and altcoins and tokens. Um, sure. Tokens are really, really interesting to me, because as you mentioned earlier, having a token is a little bit like owning a stake in a startup, but they all are also used as like kind of like, that's basically what it is. It's kind of like owning a stake in a startup, and they have like these initial coin offerings, and there's this whole model that goes around them. Um, can you talk a little bit about what it means to own a token? How do you get a token, I guess, as part of that? And like, are there any regulatory things that people should be thinking about? Sure. So um, this gets back to kind of the difference between tokens and cryptocurrencies again. As I mentioned, cryptocurrencies, they have um, their own blockchain and they have a method of you know creating new coins. There are different models for that, like proof of stake, proof of work. Um, but probably a lot of the listeners have heard that there are these people out there called Bitcoin miners who are responsible for um, using their computers to perform very complex mathematical calculations. Uh, which simultaneously record and verify transactions on the network, maintain the network, but also then as a reward for their uh, their time and processing power, uh, they create new Bitcoins. Um, well, with tokens, they don't have their own blockchain, and so they don't have miners. So the way that you get uh, tokens into people's hands is you do something called an initial coin offering, or ICO, and it involves doing a crowd sale, uh, usually a worldwide crowd sale, to raise funds for the software project or platform you're trying to build uh, that the token is associated with. And you raise funds in the form uh, usually of cryptocurrency. So it's kind of funny, but people who have been holding Ether and Bitcoin and have seen the value rise over time then um, are able to use this to kind of gain access to these, um, these even newer blockchain assets, these tokens that are being launched, some of which sound you know, very exciting in what they uh, want to, what, what, what their creators want to do with them. So uh, there are different models. You can do a Dutch auction. Uh, you can you know, just specify a time limit for how long you're going to have your, your crowd sale open, like two weeks or 30 days or what have you. Um, but you basically take in you know, as many funds as you can or you set uh, a funding goal and you raise up to that limit. Um, and then at the end of that, you distribute the tokens to all of the investors. And this is where those smart contracts um, really come in handy if your token's built on top of Ethereum, because you can automatically distribute the correct amount of tokens to all of the people who, who bought into the crowd sale. And it's sort of like Kickstarter on steroids. Um, this model, just in the past you know, less than a year, has gone from being something that hardly anybody was talking about, hardly anybody was doing, to something that is now raising hundreds of millions of dollars um, for software projects. And some of them, you know, some people are starting to criticize the model because uh, while some of the projects sound really fascinating and might hold a lot of promise, 
others might be the equivalent of those kind of fly by night dot uh, com companies that had little more than a website and the word you know dot com at the end of their name. Um, some of these projects might just have kind of a white paper and a, a couple of people behind them and they're trying to raise huge amounts of capital. Um, the, but you're right that, that yes, in a way it's kind of like owning a stake in a startup there, these tokens kind of like a cross between stocks and currencies. And this is where, you know, you might think the SEC would take an interest, um, that, you know, securities law prohibits companies from, uh, directly soliciting investment from from um, you know all types of investors and all around the world. Uh, within the U.S., you can directly solicit investment, but only from people known as accredited investors uh, or from institutions. Accredited investors um, have to have a certain net worth. Like I think you know it's it's in the low millions. Um, they're they're expected to be kind of savvier and also that they have enough money that you know if they take a loss on a risky investment, it's not going to you know, put them out on the street or something. Um, securities laws still ban, you know, average people, probably like you and me, from, uh, you know, from from um, uh, being directly solicited by companies for investment. Well, this is exactly, in a sense, what these token projects are doing. They're uh, opening up these crowd sales and saying, hey, buy our token so that, you know, you'll be giving us, let's say we have a funding goal of $10 million. We want to raise $10 million so we can spend the next uh, 12 months developing our platform. Meantime, you'll get this token, which is like a liquid digital asset that will trade on exchanges. It has a monetary value. Um, and if, you know, our project is hot, the monetary value of that token might increase even before the platform we're building launches. And you might be able to get a quick 2x or 3x on your investment by just selling it to somebody else um, on one of those exchanges. But then beyond even that, you know, the idea is if our platform launches and is successful and grows, then the value of that token uh, will grow as well. Of course, the um, flip side of that is that it could just crash and burn. Um, exactly. But exactly right. One of the things that we talked about um, earlier when we were planning the show is that there is actually a venture capital firm that has used this to start a fund. Right. Yeah. So this company called Blockchain Capital, this um, San Francisco uh, VC firm that it invests exclusively in blockchain technology companies, they in April um, decided to do their own ICO. They were raising uh, money for their third investment fund. I think their goal was fifty million dollars, and they decided to try raising ten million of that fifty uh, by issuing their own token. Not only did they decide to do this. Um, they raised the ten million dollars in only six hours. That's crazy. And with for them, so this, I know I was kind of ra uh, rambling a bit before it gets it gets you know long winded, but um, there's sort of a spectrum that these tokens exist on. Some have a real utility use case um, for the platforms you know that are being built, and I think some of those creators are going to be able to argue successfully that those should not count as securities. Well, this VC firm, Blockchain Capital, they decided from the very get-go to admit they were going to be issuing a digital security. And so they did a lot of work. Um, I've talked to the managing partners there. They did a lot of work to make sure that uh, if and when the SEC kind of tries to come down on this uh, new funding model, it tries to, to drop the ban hammer, in a sense, on uh, some of this Wild West you know, speculative activity, uh, they think they'll still be okay. They'll end up on the right side of the law. And that is an important point to make that I, I make in the Fortune article. So far, the SEC has not tried to ban this. They haven't said anything about this. Um, but 
blockchain capital really thinks this is going to be an incredibly disruptive financing model, um, that it's going to disrupt venture capital, private equity, real estate, any of these kind of industries that um, involve illiquid capital. And I think that that's part of it, too, which part of the reason that the SEC hasn't jumped on this so quickly is because the SEC is still trying to keep up with Bitcoin. And this is still kind of like small potatoes, A, compared to Bitcoin, but B, like they they haven't even gotten like their hands around the first cryptocurrency yet, much less exactly. all this other stuff that's going on. Well, and it could be that I mean I don't want to put words in their mouth certainly, but it could be also that um, they see some very smart people uh, saying that this is going to be the future of funding for startups. It's like a kind of Kickstarter on steroids, um, and they might not want to squelch too much of that innovation because certainly there are other jurisdictions like Singapore. Um, that don't have uh, those kinds of restrictions. And, you know, there's in a globalized world, there's always the risk that innovation and talent could flow from one place to another. Um, so, yeah, it's, but it is interesting because some people, some traditional, you know, minded people are kind of looking at this and saying, this is crazy. Um, certainly, I think it has been an overheated market. There are some uh, projects that have raised tens of millions, yes. uh, if not over a hundred million dollars, in a matter of days. You know, and and that's unfathomable in terms of traditional investing. And this actually so, leads me exactly to my next question, which is, a lot of people are talking about Bitcoin and the potential for a bubble, or, mm. or, and, and it's not just for Bitcoin. It, it really this applies to all of the cryptocurrencies. What do you think? Is there a bubble? Is it going to burst? I think it uh, it has burst. I would say it's it's bursting right now. The um, the total value of these blockchain assets, when you talk about cryptocurrencies plus the tokens, you know, it exploded this spring. Um, it went from it, it went as high as 116 billion dollars in June, which was an increase of more than six times the total value of the market at the beginning of the year. Um, and now tens of billions of dollars have been erased in recent weeks. Um, Bitcoin had reached as high as $3,000. I think now it's it's just above 2000 Ethereum had gotten to over 400 Now it's um, it's a little below uh, 200 It's maybe like 170 or something. Um, so I think the question is, you know, what caused the, the bubble or this incredible rise in value in the first place? And then second, you know, why has it declined so sharply? Uh, the first answer is I think it was caused by a number of factors. One is that the infrastructure for the digital currency economy is far more robust than in years past. Uh, even when the price of Bitcoin was in the doldrums or declining in much of 2015 and 2016, a lot of you know very dedicated and smart people continued to build companies and applications and forge banking partnerships and put a lot of other pieces in place. Uh, there are now dozens of Bitcoin exchanges in countries all over the world they're dependable you know, wallet providers for people to hold their balances of digital currency. And meanwhile, just about every major financial institution has gotten interested in blockchain technology uh, or even in possibly using Bitcoin itself or some other cryptocurrency to do things like cross-border payments. Yeah, and, and you're, not talking, the, you're not talking about small companies either. You're talking companies like IBM. Right, IBM, Microsoft, um, you know, BNP Paribas, the huge French mega bank, um, MUFG, Mitsubishi UFJ Financial Group, which is the world's third largest bank based in Japan, um, you know, JP Morgan. I mean, uh, many of the major banks in the US as well, they all have blockchain working groups and 
uh, they're all they've all been putting out proofs of concept and and uh, they're doing trial runs. And in fact, many of them have said that this year is the year that the rubber needs to meet the road um, and kind of uh, really prove the value of blockchain technology to the financial industry. But I was going to say one of the big developments that occurred this spring that helped, I think, kick off the, the bubble, if you want to call it that, uh, was that Japan officially declared Bitcoin to be legal tender, uh, which was a huge sea change from the days when people were predicting that Bitcoin and its its fellows would be outlawed, you know, and driven permanently underground in developed countries. So not only did that create a new surge of interest in Bitcoin, uh, and each surge, by the way, that we've seen has been bigger than the one that came before, but it also prepared the way for this next phase that we're in now, this multi-coin, multi-token ecosystem with you know, online crowdfunding of, of new blockchain token projects. Um, as for if I can keep rolling on here to answer the second part of my own question <laughs> of why has it declined so sharply, I think part of the answer there is just that what goes up must come down, you know, at least to some extent. We're still far above the value that the market had six or seven months ago. So it certainly has not retrenched all the way back uh, to its former position, not even close. But there has been a dramatic fall from the high. And I think it's just that, you know, bull markets like what we saw this spring, it really was a, a two or three month phenomenon. Those don't come along very often and they don't last forever. And, you know, there were some indications that the market had gotten overheated and a lot of kind of unsavvy retail investors might have piled in and, um, which and were just kind of going for the ride. Yeah, which would have driven it up as well. Um, Absolutely. So... Um, well, I think the other reason is that there is right now a lot of um, what people in the space call FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt regarding some changes that might have to take place uh, as early as August 1st to the Bitcoin network. And Bitcoin, of course, being the Mac Daddy of them all, this thing that kind of powers and helps to support the whole ecosystem, um, that has been driving down the price not only of Bitcoin, but also of, of Ether and uh, a lot of the other tokens. Uh, okay, so we're actually like we have bumped up against our time limit. Austin needs to eat lunch. I can see him gnawing on his arm through the glass. Um, but sure, um, we didn't get to talk about the Delaware. I know. Out. I'm so wow. upset. Um, would you be interested in maybe coming on a future show and talking some more? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. If, if that's something you're interested in, I know that we would definitely love to have you. Um, we have I have a lot of questions for you. I'm sure listeners have a lot of questions. Um, listeners, if you would like to ask Brian a question, you can email me at industryfocus at fool.com or by tweeting us at MF Industry Focus. Um, you can let us know what you think about Bitcoin or about how awesome Brian is. Um, nice things, please. We want to keep our guests. Um, <laughs> as usual, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Molly Fool may have recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks or cryptocurrencies or tokens based solely on what you hear. Thank you to Austin Morgan, today's producer. Austin, I asked you two months ago, but I want to know if your answer has changed. Would you buy Bitcoin, Austin? I still don't totally understand it, so I... It's a no. It's, it's strange. Well, then <laughs> I, I do need to come on a future show until until I've gotten through to Austin. Not in terms of convincing <laughs> him to buy it, but in terms of you know him understanding it. I feel like I'm I'm letting him down. You absolutely are, Brian. We're just we're so, we're so sad. 
Well, send me a gif on Slack about it to convey your disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely will. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Austin. And thanks, listeners. I hope everyone has a great week.